Father, we recount your deeds in planning and executing at the perfect time all that was necessary for our salvation. We thank you that you sent your Son in the fullness of time to be born of a virgin, to live and proclaim the works of the Lord, and to himself give up his life as a sacrifice for the lost, to die on Calvary's tree to absorb the wrath that our sin deserved, whose shed blood washes away our every transgression against your holy law. We recount your deeds in raising your son from the grave. It was impossible for the grave to hold him. After those three days and three nights, our Lord and Savior defeated death and Sheol in rising from the dead. He proclaimed the kingdom arrived in his work on Calvary and was ascended to receive that kingdom before the Father after 40 short days. And we recount the deeds of our God in that Christ, our Lord and Savior, now rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. Until such time as every last enemy is subdued and placed under His feet. And then we will see the full manifest scope of your power in history. This morning as we open up these scriptures that you have delivered to us the cost of your precious blood. Jesus, I pray that you would send your spirit to our hearts to cause them to spring alive with life within our souls. To root us and ground us in the hope of our salvation. It's in Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity we have to open up the Scriptures together and to worship our Lord and to behold His Holy Word. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll consider four verses in detail this morning. Hebrews 12 verse 1 through 4 will be our primary text. This morning's message is under the title, Audience of Heroes. Audience of Heroes. The title reflects an analogy, a metaphor, that the author of Hebrews employs, where he sees the Christian life, he conceives of it as a race, where there are in the stands those who have been successful in this endeavor, who precede us, and they cheer us on, as it were, from the stands of glory, encouraging us as we now run our race, and hopefully in Christ to do so, without darkness or shadow of turning, without growing encumbered with the weight of sin and things that easily beset, and unto the praise of His great name, crossing the finish line of glory, with exploits to show for God working His salvation in our hearts and then through our sanctified lives in obedience and faith. The aim of this morning's message is to realize the potential encouragement accumulated over thousands of years of faithfulness. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but the stories of those who have gone before us, who have manifested faith in the one true God that are recorded in the pages of Scripture, do you realize that in their testimony, in this record, are thousands of years of accumulated encouragement from which you can be strengthened in your own faith? This is the theme of Hebrews 11 and 12 the theme of our text today. Would you stand with me if you're able with your scriptures open this morning out of reverence for the holy word of God and let us behold these words together. Follow me as I declare God's holy word. Again, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Much like chapter 12 of the great gospel 
record that we find in the book of Romans, the author of Hebrews takes this moment in chapter 12, verse 1, to introduce the primary application section of his message. This is signaled by the word, therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That word, therefore, usually signals a point of application. It is to connect what has gone before to its pertinent usefulness in our own hearts and lives. And so chapter 12 takes this basic shape. The author of Hebrews introduces this major section of his work, having laid the groundwork which precedes it with painstaking precision. He answers, in so doing, he answers this question. How then shall we live in light of the testimony of former professors of the faith? We've heard of them in messages in our text that preceded this one. We've talked about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and their record throughout Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. We've spoken of Jacob, of Esau, of Isaac. We've seen how Joseph, Moses, and those in the Promised Land who crossed the Red Sea, and Rahab, the prostitute, who did not perish because her heart was changed when she believed the one true God, and of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and how all of these who lives testified to the reality in their heart, the reality of the conviction of their heart, of God Himself revealing Himself to them, we've seen their stories. How then shall we live? Well, Hebrews 12, 1-4 and following answers that question. Not to mention the unparalleled as we accumulate these stories of faithfulness in the saints who've gone before. There is one who exceeds them all. And this is the testimony of Jesus Christ, incarnate God in flesh, the Son of God. His exploits, His faithfulness, His testimony is also featured in our text to help and to assist us in our own walk of faith. And so the author of Hebrews aims in this way for his readers to assimilate this information in a very practical way. And to help us, he employs a race metaphor, a competitive race metaphor. He compares the Christian life of obedience and faith to something like an Olympic event before a stadium packed with former champions whose exploits serve to cheer the latest generation of competitors. As we see this in our text, we find a few clues. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Have you ever seen an Olympic athlete run a 100-yard dash or a relay race with a backpack on? That would be foolish. They wear only the clothes that are necessary to the task, and they put all other unnecessary distractions out of their mind and burdens off of their back. He goes on to say, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you've ever been involved in competitive sports at all, your coach likely told you, Keep your eye on the ball. In baseball, that's an application of endurance. Stay on task. Make sure that your attention is fixed upon the goal. You might have heard your track coach tell you, don't let up until you've crossed that finish line by 15 steps. In fact, run faster as it comes into view. These are pictures to help us understand a little what it's like to run with endurance the race that is set before us in the Christian life. And so this metaphor is employed. In the mind's eye of the author of Hebrews, he sees no doubt one of those great stadiums of ancient Rome, the ones we see like at the Colosseum that are in ruins now, but you can imagine them in their heyday with marble steps staggering up like a ziggurat in a circle into the distance and throngs cheering and it sounds like a waterfall, a cascade of noise as we see the little figures down in the circle running faster and faster and we imagine chariot races in the great hippodrome and this is the picture and we are like those who are running our race now here on this track but there are those who populate the stands and this is the idea so the stands are packed with these former champions and their exploits serve to cheer on the latest generation of competitors if you're in christ if you're a christian that would be you today this analogy assumes more though than just this picture not just their cheers 
are meaningful as they look on to boost our morale, but we also have the benefit of their training as their own efforts are recorded and employed for the instruction of the church today. Yes, even the modern church. So this, quote, cloud of heroes or multitude, as we find in the Greek, is what that means. This multitude that has preceded us in attaining the glories of the next life, they beckon us to join them. You can do it, they cry. Run faster. Look to Christ, they shout, from the stands of glory. Now, we can't see them, can we? And we've never heard their cheers, that is, with our physical eyes and with our physical ears. But the author of Hebrews begs us to tap into a different sensory experience, if you will. Remember what he has said? He has told us in 11.1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read these words and be convicted that in the unseen realm, there are those who have completed the race, done so with honors, to God's glory alone, because they look to their Lord and Savior ultimately as inspiration and were taught by His servants who served Him faithfully through the ages. By, for, it is, uh, it, for by it, that is, this faith, the people of old received their commendation. Hebrews 11.2 By faith we understand that the world, the universe, was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the essence of faith is that there is a conviction of that which we can't see with our physical eyes. What is faith? It is believing in and acting on the power and the promises of God. That's the working definition we've used in our series. Believing in and acting on the promises and power of God. And with the benefit of this record, Hebrews 11 and 12, we see the promises and power of God and their inspirational force in the saints that have gone before and in the life of Christ Himself. So now let us behold in fullness or let us behold by faith what those who have preceded us behold in fullness. And let us be encouraged this side of the finish line. Let us race to join those and learn from their example as they looked to Christ. Let me give you a heading. The author of Hebrews closes his case in Hebrews 11 with an appeal to three things. One is an appeal to action. Secondly, it's an appeal to inspiration. And thirdly, an appeal to reason. He says, in light, of what, in light of this, therefore act, signaled by this phrase, let us run. He closes his case with an appeal saying, let us therefore run in a certain way. It's an appeal to action. It's a call to a particular kind of faithful activity. Secondly, he says, be inspired. Look to Jesus who went before you and draw from that examples, encouragement, faith, strength, grace, instruction. Finally, he appeals to our reason. He says, consider him, as if to say, I have an unassailable argument. For these reasons, consider Christ. For these reasons, having beheld the record of God's work in history, therefore, the implication has continued to run. So let's look at these. First of all, action. An appeal to action. Let us run. Reading again Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is a witness? Let's consider this in context. In the Greek, martus is the word, and it's the root word from which we get the word martyr. Witness and martyr are synonymous. In the scriptures, not every uh, witness was a martyr as we understand it, however. I, I suppose you better said there's overlap between the two terms. A witness is one whose life evidenced the changed heart that God uh, manifests in their life when they came to faith and began to walk in a new way. This is the idea of a witness. We've seen a long list of them in Hebrews 11. This idea of martyr was developed from that term. And it's the, idea, it's the idea of the ultimate or the quintessential example of a witness, a professor of the faith. We see this um, picture in Revelation chapter 12 of a witness when everything is put to the test, even his life is required of him. In Hebrews, I'm sorry, Revelation 12, 11, 
Packing up to 10, it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of its Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. Who has conquered him? This would be the witnesses. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. A witness is one who bears a testimony, that is, They bear a personal experience, a profession of faith, and a record of life that demonstrates, it speaks to, it gives evidence to something substantial. For they love not their lives even unto death. The ultimate test of a true witness would be, even in the face of death, do you yet stand strong in your faith? This is the idea of a martyr. Now let's look at a couple of witnesses in Hebrews 11. Those who, in the face of extreme test, nevertheless stood strong in their faith. This by way of review. In Hebrews 11, let's just consider Noah in verse 7. For by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here, what's an example of this idea of a race, this call to action, that was lived out in Noah's witness? Well, Noah was called to certain action. The appeal to action was from the Word of God. He said, Noah, I'm going to flood this entire earth and destroy all living creatures, save you and your family, if you follow my instructions, and build an ark for the saving of of the seed crop for the next generation of creatures and you and the eight people that comprise your your immediate household. And so so Noah did this. Now you can imagine how this would take faith. Noah put aside the weight and the encumbrance that would easily entangle him like, I don't believe it's going to flood. History has never recorded an event to that proportions. That's ridiculous. That would be an example of a weight or a sin that would encumber Noah. It would be a confession of unbelief. I'm not taking these instructions from this entity, so-called God, seriously because I don't see any empirical evidence in the historical or archaeological record of a flood of this proportion ever occurring in the course of the human race, so why should I expect it in the future? But Noah didn't think like this. He didn't let that weight and encumbrance of unbelief weighed him down so as to prevent him from running his race. What else would Noah have likely faced by way of potential weight and encumbrance? Well, the jeers and the mockery of his unbelieving neighbors who neither believed nor understood what was about to happen. No doubt, these who surrounded him in their great wickedness would condemn him for the foolishness of this century-plus-long activity of constructing this ark to save him and his family against some, what, hypothetical flood? Yeah, whatever, Noah. Noah did not let the unbelief of his neighbors encumber him and weight him down so as not to run his race. But instead, what did he do? He looked to the Word of God. Even as we look to Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and as he looked to the Word, he, re, he, uh, uh, he retained sufficient appeal to action, inspiration, and good reason to continue his race of obedience, to follow the Lord where he was leading him. Therefore, Noah was a witness. Abraham, similarly, a man elderly with an elderly wife, is promised by God by solemn covenant and vow The God and the creator of the earth, the entire universe, tells him you will be the father of many nations. Yet between him and his wife, Sarah, they have not so much as a single child, no offspring. God changes Abraham's name to actually mean the father of many nations. But you see how this would require great faith. Because at this time, the door of biological opportunity for procreation was closing, to put it scientifically, and in fact locked shut by a man's estimation, and there was no practical chance, there was no possibility 
through the eyes of men and normal course of things that he was going to have a son. However, Abraham, though he had his doubts, did not let those encumber him and weight him down. Instead, he believed that God never breaks his promises, and so he ran. Abraham ran all the way to the hill of potential sacrifice, even with his son Isaac in tow. And when the word of God says, sacrifice your only son, Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. And so Abraham ran his race. Abraham never settled again in a city so far as the world conceives, where things were stable and prosperous. But he left a place like that and continued as a nomad. Yet he ran. Why? He was looking to a city whose builder and foundation stones were made, were placed by God himself. Abraham was a witness. What of Joseph, sold by slavery, uh, sold into slavery by his own brothers, his flesh and blood, had to leave the place of familiar surroundings and go conscripted to a life of slavery, becoming the property traded with the medium of exchange of the day to Potiphar. And then he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He was condemned to prison. And while he's rotting this hole, he yet believes that the promises God had given him stand. And so he continued to run. He professed the word of God and his faith to jailers and those with whom he was incarcerated until such time as God set him free, elevated him to a place of prominence. He was responsible for saving not just Egypt, not just the surrounding nations, but in fact, his father and all of his family so that the seed of the messianic lineage would be preserved and Jesus would one day be born. Joseph was a witness. He ran his race. So did Moses. You can recall the events in Moses' life suffice to say, how tempting would it be to have all this influence as a prince of Egypt and all of the gold and wealth that you could possibly imagine at your fingertips. The snap of fingers have a pyramid erected in your name. At the snap of the fingers on your other hand, have all the gold you could wish for to travel the world or to acquire for yourself the finest things of life. Moses did not allow these weights and encumbrances of power, prestige, and wealth to weight him down. He was willing to follow the Lord even into the wilderness, even back to Pharaoh to declare to him a higher authority says, let my people go, and then to believe that God could part a sea to lead an exodus of a million slaves into the promised land. Moses was a witness. Moses ran. So this call to action has been well modeled for us, has it not? These are a few examples. What would tend to weigh us down? We've considered these witnesses in context. What about the weight and sin? In Hebrews 12, as we continue to read, there's some examples of the problems that this church was stepping into, was suffering among themselves. It says in Hebrews 12, 12, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and, make stre- and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This church needed encouragement. The weight and sin was specifically listed in this passage as that which would cause you to grow tired, weary, doubtful, lame, that is, not walking as fast as you once did, maybe pausing in the progress to which God had called you. He says, make straight paths for your feet, so that What is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Keep striving for that godliness. I remember a song that I heard growing up and the refrain often sticks in the back of my head. The chorus is very simple. It's, I just want to stay angry at the evil. I just want to be pulling people closer. The author of that psalm recognized that you can get very excited about a certain thing when it's new and fresh in your mind. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to embrace a new lifestyle and purpose in my life. It's exciting at first. You might have identity in your peer group. But sooner or later, there is a testing time where it's no longer encouraging and empowering and uh, fun and, uh, and, and as inviting of a proposition to continue faithful. And during that time, there is a sense where what once 
gave you inspiration is now lacking, so where will you turn? The message is to look to Christ. Stay angry at the evil. Just be pulling people closer, uh, grabbing on to Christ, striving for peace, looking towards the things that God loves, embracing holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, anger, we could think of, or resentment, disillusionment, unmet expectations in the Christian life can plague the soul. They can be like weights and hindrances, sin that slows us down. It says, make sure that these things do not cause trouble. By it, many have become defiled. See to it, he goes on, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The promise of immediate pleasure, sacrificing the eternal reward for the promise of immediate pleasure, that's the action of a desperate man. It's spiritual suicide. Don't do it. Avoid those temptations to serve self. Serve Christ. It's a joy that may be deferred in part, but it's a greater joy still. It's a life of eternal reward for which we strive. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, speaking of Esau, he was rejected. He was an anti-witness, if you, if you will. For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. What's the difference between Esau, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, the ones we listed before? Well, Esau sold the long-term promise for a short-term gain. That's the essence of sin in so many words, is it not? To trade the long-term truth for the short-term benefit. These are the weights and sins that would easily beset this church, easily beset us. And these are the things that the author of Hebrews calls us to lay aside, to shed, to recognize them for what they are. It's like a backpack full of bricks before you Enter the 100-yard dash. It's like a trailer a full of dirt that you hitch up to your belt before you begin your relay race. Shed those weights and sins that easily entangle, he says. Other things the church was struggling with, we find in chapter 2, verse 1, their effort was decreasing. Chapter 3, verse 17, sin was holding them back. Chapter 4, 11, they needed recovery of an intensity of purpose. Chapter 6, 11, there was just this sluggish mood. Chapter 10, they needed to regain their lost confidence. Chapter 12, they had lost their competitive spirit. So amidst these trials, these temptations, the call is to action. Shed these things and let us run. There is a new covenant example. I want to give you one more witness. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. The four that I gave you before in brief, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, as we summarized ways in which they witnessed to the reality of their faith under trial and pressure, shedding the weight and encumbrance of sin and running the race with faithfulness. Those are Old Covenant examples, if you will, Old Testament examples. There's a New Testament example that's even clearer. It's extremely powerful. Stephen is basically brought before the court to answer for his aberrant beliefs, at least with respect to the Pharisees of the day who themselves were idolaters. He answers for himself by preaching a sermon to the intellectual and religious elites of the day. The more he preaches the truth, the more they are offended. It was the most politically incorrect thing you could imagine saying, and it grated on the ears of majority culture. They, uh, his words were seen as absolutely intolerant and unloving. How dare you tell us such a thing? Who do you think you are? In our day, when we stand on the truth, we will be accused of the same. Why? Because men in their sin never want to hear that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun and a righteous judge who has all power and knows and sees everything before whom they will one day stand. But it is the worst kind of hatred, if you will, of obstinance or of obfuscation to deny the truth to hell-bent sinners. We want to rescue them. A man who is drowning and he's clawing for air, he might in his psychosis and fear actually fight against his rescuer. He's struggling so hard in a complete panic that he's risking his energy and sinking beneath the waves and you as a rescuer overpower him. There's a rope tied to you. He doesn't realize it. You grab him, you stop him from struggling, and the rope pulls the two of you 
to the safety of the ship. This is what it's like in preaching the gospel. But a lot of us are versed to the struggle of preaching the truth in love, even though the ears of the people are stopped with their sin. Listen to this. Hebrews 7.51, Stephen declares, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. See, these men needed to realize who Christ was and then confess their sin of murdering the Holy One, God in flesh. Verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They were the uh, recipients of the very Word of God. The legacy of God's revelation was in their safekeeping, yet they had not allowed it to go into their heart. What was the reaction to the unbelievers to this sermon? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, that is at Stephen. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice. They stopped their ears. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, that is Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen was a witness. Stephen proclaimed the gospel even when his life was required of him. You could see what would easily encumber and hold him back. The threat of being killed by stones, for one. Not to mention being ostracized and mocked by the elite religious community as we have it in this text. However, Stephen ran faithful. He confessed his faith up to the bitter end. And as soon as that last stone struck the life from his lungs... He crossed the finish line. He crossed the finish line and joined those in the stadium of glory, cheering on Saul, who would soon be renamed Paul, who at this time agreed with his death. But having seen the record of Stephen's witness, no doubt the Holy Spirit used that and other events to convict him of his own sin to be the greatest missionary the Christian church has ever known. And you and I are the beneficiaries of Paul's faithfulness. Stephen was cheering Paul on from the stands of glory, even as they both cheer us on now. Will we live in light of this truth? Will we answer this appeal to action? Will we run, shedding the encumbrances of weight and sin that easily beset us? Things like mockery, discouragement, weariness, sins of self-indulgence, sins of being uh, of a uh, wishing to be well-liked and, uh, by others instead of by Christ and so on and so forth. This is the message of Hebrews 11 and 12. Secondly, major point, the author closes his case with an appeal not just to action, but to inspiration. The author of Hebrews calls us to look to Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, but look beyond them still, ultimately to look to Christ. Hebrews 12:2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our inspiration. We've heard this appeal to action, let us run. Now we hear this appeal to inspiration, look to Jesus. Who is this Jesus of which the author speaks? He's already introduced him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. That is, he is the one who is the foremost figure. He is the one responsible for it. He is the ground and power behind our confessed faith. He is the apostle. He is the high priest. Consider Him, look to Him, draw inspiration from Him. 
and our passage today, the author adds to apostle and high priest two other terms, founder and perfecter. Look to Jesus. Who is he? He is among his other abilities, among his great testimony of everything, of his nature and character. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some translations say pioneer. That's the idea in the original language. A founder, one who homesteads or pioneer, the one that discovers or charts the territory first, who makes a path for others to follow. And this is the idea all through Hebrews. He is the one who has gone beyond the veil. He is the pioneer into the presence of God. What gave him free entrance into the Holy of Holies as it were? Well, he was without sin. He offered himself as a sacrifice to secure our entrance into the Holy of Holies if we are in him. He was a high priest. He is a high priest. Therefore, he is commissioned by God with the specific qualifications to enter into the presence of God. He is the pioneer into perfect communion uh, with a holy God, with the Father. Christ the Son is, by, is therefore the pioneer and the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we are inspired by and follow and are in Him, His experience breaking that territory, breaking that trail becomes the path that we then follow. Christ as pioneer took on flesh. That is, God became man in the incarnation. Another great theme in all the Gospels, and Hebrews particularly. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 through 18, we have these words. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he, this is speaking of Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers, who is he calling brothers? We, if we are in him today, if we are the faithful, if we are Christians, if we trust in Jesus' blood to wash away our sins, saying, I will tell of your name. This is a prophecy of Christ that he fulfilled. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Psalm 22, the second portion. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children God has given me. It says verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, Christ partook in our flesh and blood, that through death, Christ having a physical body, physically dying, he destroyed, it says in verse 14, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and he, in so doing, delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps. They don't share in flesh and blood. They're outside of the scope of this redemptive plan as such. But he helps who? The offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that means wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh became a man to share in our experience because when he, was, when he passed the test that we in Adam failed of keeping the law of God perfectly and thus proving ourselves righteous, when he passed the test that we failed, he as our substitute sacrifice could give us in the great exchange his righteous law keeping, take our sin upon him, become sin for us, be slaughtered in our place. And in so doing, he proved the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, the founder and the perfecter of our confession of faith. Secondly, as we look to Christ as our inspiration, we see he's our founder and our perfecter, and he manifests this in the following, back in Hebrews 12, who, speaking of Christ, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ endured persecution, and we look to his inspiration, inspirational example to see how this was evident on the cross. When Christ endured the nails driven into his hands and feet, we see that the faith in God's word that he believed as a man in the core of his being gave him grace to believe the promises of God 
that though he was suffering excruciatingly under the instruments of death, in this moment, the grave could not hold him, and in three days, he would rise. We look to his persecution as he not only endured this excruciating physical pain, but also the shame and the mockery, literally adding insult to injury, magnifying beyond comprehension what Christ as a man endured at this time in flesh for us. One way we could summarize this truth is this. Our faith, listen, our faith has already withstood the ultimate test in the experience of the incarnate Son. Think of this. Our faith has already withstood the ultimate test in the experience of the incarnate Son. Faith that God the Father would fulfill His promise to the Son that Jesus had, knowing that the Father would give Him the rewards of His sufferings, led Him to endure the pain of crucifixion and the mockery of the whole world. And as He did this, He proved the strength of your faith if you have true faith today. Our faith in Christ, as it were, has already withstood the ultimate test. Finally, under inspiration, we look to not only how Christ was persecuted, but the promise that gave Him hope. We've touched upon it, but looking more closely, we see in our text that after enduring the cross and despising the shame as we have it in verse 2, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, Who for the joy, Christ for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy that was set before him, a promise of eternal bliss, the glorious rewards of his suffering that was set before Christ. It was the truth that all for whom he died would be reaped into the storehouses of glorious trophies of his great exploits, including you and me, if you are a Christian, if you trust Jesus for your salvation here today. The Lamb receives the rewards of his sufferings. It's more than this, he received a kingdom, Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days, this picture into the heavenly realm opens, the ancient of days, God the Father is standing there, the Son of Man ascends before him and he's given a kingdom to rule and reign. And so Christ at his his ascension received that kingdom, that was part of the joy set before him, the rewards of his suffering. Hebrews opens declaring these things unequivocally. It says, long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It goes on, verse 3, He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's chapter 1, verse 3 and following. You can look in your notes. I have a long list. We won't go through them. 2, 9, 4, 14, 5, 5, 8, 1, 6, 19, 7, 26. It goes on and on. These references to Christ at the right hand of the Father. Years ago, 1730s, there were two missionaries that left England or uh, Europe somewhere. There were Moravians. It was this uh, true believing church that had a desire to spread the gospel to all nations. They heard of a couple islands in the Caribbean, and they were populated by slaves, and their presumably white owners would not allow anybody to visit the island for fear that if their slaves heard the truth of the liberty in Christ, They would lose their stranglehold, their tyrannical hold on this very profitable economic situation. Well, scratching their heads and wondering what to do, two Moravian missionaries decided they must sell themselves into slavery. So that's what they did. They sold themselves into slavery, and as they boarded the deck of the ship, headed for these islands in the Caribbean, conscripted to a life of hard labor with no reward other than a little bit to eat in a place to sleep in between lashes out in the baking sun in these fields while they were sailing away to that future. They cried from the deck of that ship, May the Lamb receive the reward of His sufferings. This was an example in history of those who looked to Christ. 
They knew as believers, if they died in the fields as slaves, sharing the gospel with their fellow workers, that they would be seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, that they would have heaven eternal to look forward to, that their labors on this earth as the Spirit moved them to this kind of radical obedience would earn for them a crown in glory, a crown that they could then take and cast before Jesus Christ in worship and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I am, and these slaves that are now with me, having heard the proclamation of the gospel through my service on the Caribbean island, are the rewards of your suffering. This is the idea of looking to Christ and the joy set before Him as inspiration. Finally, more briefly in closing this morning, we have an appeal to reason. Consider Him. Consider Him, Hebrews 12, 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Our author builds on this argument from lesser to greater. Remember what he said in the end of chapter 11, verse 39, all these, speaking of the Old Testament saints, though commended for their faith, they didn't receive what was promised, namely salvation in Christ in time secured on Calvary, Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, then apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This appeal to the reason, consider you have every possible reason to be encouraged to press on in your faith. Our author basically in summary makes this case, he says, or he, in so many words, he explains that if we are preceded by faithful, by the faithful who, were pers- who uh, persevered, with much less revelation. So if we are preceded by, as we mentioned before, ones like Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, who persevered in their faith with much less revelation, Christ had not come in flesh yet, and by our Savior, who endured under much greater affliction, how much more shall we overcome if we but embrace the means that God supplies? If we are preceded by the faithful who persevered with much less revelation, And if we are preceded by Christ who endured much greater affliction, how much more shall we overcome if we but embrace the means? Don't forsake the assembly of the beloved. Remember the meaning of the communion table. Encourage one another in prayer and fellowship as the Lord gives you opportunity. Make your requests known before your great high priest in your prayer closet and as we gather in this place. Worship the Lord in spirit and truth at every opportunity. Lift your sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him as He has answered your deepest need, securing salvation for your soul. And as you do so, the promise is, if those who had much less by way of resources on which to draw, endured and now populate the stadia of glory, so you will continue. God will perfect that work that He has begun in you, and through these means, bring you through the difficulties of this life, the tempering graces of affliction. He will use these difficulties, these trials, as tempering grace of affliction to lead you unto glory. One last appeal. Drawing on reason, making his case, our author says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, he knows that no one in his hearing is a martyr yet. He's not assuming they won't be called to shed their blood, however. And there are certainly those who went before who were called to pay that uh, sacrifice for their faith. So what is our author getting at? Well, he's saying this, that the nature of our struggle with respect to sin is categorically distinct from the sufferings of Christ. He has just talked about Christ shedding his blood on Calvary for us. Christ suffered unto securing our justification. The blood that Christ shed in His sacrifice was enduring not just crucifixion, not just torture, not just execution. It was enduring the wrath of God deserved for the sins of the elect elect that required the shedding of blood and the placing of that weight of God's eternal justice that God's inarguable righteousness on the broken back of His Son and Messiah. And so in light of this, 
whatever blood we might be called to shed if God has us lay down our life in some way, physically or spiritually, metaphorically or literally, it certainly isn't that. It's instead the tempering grace of affliction. Anything we are called to go through, it's a sanctifying tool. It's shaping us more into Christ's image. We are not called to shed our own blood to atone for our sins. Why? Because blood of the perfect sacrifice was already shed for us. This morning at the communion table, at the Lord's table, this is what we remember, this is what we celebrate, this is what we proclaim. We proclaim that we are saved by the broken body and the shed blood of another. And we can look to Christ in this meal today and draw from this today at the communion table inspiration Lord, you suffered in my stead. Now give me grace to live for you. Lord, you took the nails on my account. Now give me grace to endure the mocking of my friends, to stand without compromise in a day of darkness and idolatry. Lord, you shed your uh, blood and your body was broken for me, a greater sacrifice than I could ever imagine the weight of my sin upon your shoulders, and not mine only, but all who were in or who are the elect and whose uh, sins placed that great crushing weight in every possible imaginable way upon Christ's shoulders. He bore them, and he did so with the joy set before him, enduring those circumstances because he knew there was purpose in it. So as we look to that great sacrifice, in this meal today, we can draw from it great inspiration. A call to action, let us run. Inspired, looking to Jesus, considering Him who shed His blood for us. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Father, we thank You for the great opportunity that You've given us today to partake in these means of grace and to behold Your Word proclaimed. I pray that if there are those who are weary and weak in their Christian walk, among us today, that they would be greatly encouraged as we have beheld your word. May they have grace to draw upon the potential encouragement accumulated over thousands of years of your faithfulness and providence through the saints of old, through Jesus Christ, delivered to us in the revelation of God's word for us to behold and believe this day. I pray that you would imprint deeply upon our souls, upon our hearts and minds, the truth of the gospel so that when it's challenged in this wicked world, we stand strong and instead preach the gospel to the lost, recognizing that faith that God gives us allows us to see beyond the circumstances to the joy of eternal life set before us. If finally, if there's anyone in this room who has not placed their complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary for their salvation, May you draw them by the proclamation of your word to repentance and faith, and may they run and never look back. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.